Okay, first things first. How many of like how many of you am I going to see next September? Okay, you're not going to make it. You can't make it. You both can't make it. Okay, good. Uh, we got five. Uh, I'd like to, just to make the dean happy and get one more. So, um, if you still have friends, given the amount of reading you're doing, um, <laughs> uh, bring me a, one or two more. But that being said, um, how many of you read Montaigne for today? Okay. What do you think? Yeah. I was shocked that I hadn't heard of him before. The, the, the shift that happens between him and scholasticism is so immense that I can't even quite fathom it. Yeah, but, okay, very good. But no one is talking about it anywhere else. Okay, well... Um, or maybe just the scholastics here are ignorant. <laughs> Shifts from scholasticism are not high on the uh, list of conversation topics. You know. um, Clearly, we're living in a different age when we get to Montaigne. All right, yeah. I was just wondering, because we, in Weston we read Swift. Yeah, the Swift is later. Proposal. So how does he compare to Swift? Because is he as like satirical? No, yeah, is I mean... he like deadly serious? Well, again, you don't know 100% how to take Montaigne. A, because the essays are all moving in different directions. B, he writes and rewrites his essays um, over the course of 20 years. You must have noticed how sometimes they veer off and say, by the way, my kidney stones are killing me. <laughs> right? Um, he is very personal in a way that St. Augustine is not. St. Augustine is setting up a template for everybody that wants to have a conversion experience and then go to heaven. All right. Montaigne says, no, I'm just going to be Montaigne. All right? I'm not an example of anything. I'm Montaigne. All right? I deserve a proper name, you yeah. know. Well, he does want to say that everyone should have the same sort of self-knowledge that I have. Right, right. I mean, that's certainly the case. And know thyself is still an important Delphic injunction. But knowing yourself is a dicey project. Yeah. All right? Why? Well, because the self is constantly changing. All right? Um, I would venture the guess that you are different from the self that you were at 10 years old. Considerably so. Yeah. And that's like reflected in his essays. Or, I mean, we're constantly changing. Yeah. So. There we go. So here's a guy who has embraced change, at least within himself, and again, a little bit like Marcus Aurelius, he has turned within. All right. But he is not as plagued by feelings of moral wickedness like Mont like Aurelius is. All right. He says, look, I'm not perfect, but I accept myself pretty much as I am. I'm not better. I'm not a great deal better or a great deal worse than the rest of our species. Very different from Aurelius. All right? He's charting his own path. Right? And he invents the genre called the essay. Right? Now, one way of thinking about the book, The Essays, looking at his introduction, is this is a book about me. It's the first time in the history of the West that anyone has said, you know, I'm really interesting. <laughs> and um, everybody should find out about me. I'm going to have my book published and republished and republished, and everybody's going to groove on it. Well, okay, they do, actually. It's a very important piece of French literature. Um, he's right on the cusp of modernity, and he's writing in Old French, 
or Middle French, which is something roughly akin to Chaucer's Middle English. Okay, so the vernacular he's using is. Well, how can I put this? Um, it's local, and it is. Uh, a marker of the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modernity. Yeah. One thing that's one maybe sort of interesting theory is so he's, he's hap- he comes right after a, a great uptick in literacy. Yes. Uh, and with the, the printing press, this can be published uh, without ridiculous expense. Well, remember the church has already come down on printing. Okay. And this is not going to get by the censors. Okay. There's too much going on here. So yeah, you can print it, provided it's in a Protestant part of uh, Europe. Okay. So nonetheless, there's a, a great increase in literacy. That's right. That's As, right. It, I almost get the feeling that something like the the town gossip, like hey, this is me, uh, has just been put on paper. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, he is in a way the town gossip, but it seems like all the gossip is about him. <laughs> Right. And that's kind of an unusual pattern. All right. So, uh, yeah, he talks about whatever pops into his head and then writes and rewrites the same essays and they meander along. And as he says in the introduction, look, if you don't like any given essay, he says, flip down the other page. Try another one. They're all different. This is the anti-treatise. In other words, this is the inverse of scholastic, gigantic, Poems that are utterly systematic, beginning from the, the nature of God Himself and generating, I don't know, all the ants in the universe. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Um, Montaigne says, well, that's a really impressive thing if you're able to do that kind of thing. Me, I have no use for that. Just as well because I couldn't. You know? At one point he says, I have no knowledge of scholasticism <laughs> and I know no one who benefited from any knowledge of scholasticism. <laughs> Well, you know, um, <laughs> a, a, pushing the the, li- the limit there, right? Uh, Scholastic may not be the most practical set of ideas. There's not a lot you can do with it. You can't build, you know, spaceships with it. On the other hand, you really don't know the Western tradition unless you know that. You can have significant gaps, and that's why you need to know Scholastic. That's why Thomas Aquinas is important. I don't teach it because God knows you've had your share of Aquinas. I also don't teach the Bible for pretty much the same reason. But Montaigne is clearly sick to death of these learned doctors droning on. Oh, please stop. We're in the middle of the Protestant Reformation, and a lot of blood has been shed in Germany, which is the kind of the locus of the wars of the Reformation, but they've also spilled over into France and other nations. France is a solidly Catholic nation because it is an absolute monarch who's Catholic. All right. And the conduct of uh, the wars of the Reformation in France have been pretty ugly. Huguenots, who are the French Protestants, they are largely middle class and urban. All right. In some ways, sociologically, they might be compared with the, the later Puritans in England. 
right? They're urban, they're educated, they're middle class, and they don't want to be Catholic, all right? Now, at one point, uh, religious toleration is enacted, all right? That's with the Edict of Nantes, all right? On the other hand, and what, what the Edict of Nantes said is, look, look um, we're a Catholic country, and Catholicism is the established religion, but we're not going to kill anybody, we're not going to persecute anybody over this. And then, all right, um, there are relative peace, uh, periods of peace, but somebody's been reading Machiavelli, no doubt, <laughs> because the, the Queen Mother of England has influenced her son to set a trap for the Huguenots and religiously and doing and engage in religious rather than ethnic cleansing. So this is cute. You gotta kinda like this. Saint Bartholomew's Day. The king is supposed to get married, and there's a big wedding reception, which is kind of what you would expect. But the king, showing himself to be generous and compassionate invites the leading Huguenots along with the leading Catholics from all over the country. So the notables and their families are invited to a wedding, and when the king invites you, you're pretty much obligated to go. Now, here's the punchline. The king, the night before the marriage is supposed to happen, sends out his soldiers with secret orders that they are to look at all the inns and uh, uh, residences in Paris, kick down the door in the middle of the night, and murder all the Huguenots. So we're talking about better than 10,000 people being killed. And look, this, isn't the, this is not our kind of warfare where we kill somebody from 25,000 feet. This is where you put a sword in the chest, and remember that, that this involves women and children too. Whole families get massacred. All right, and uh, remember, when you're killing somebody like that, um, red-handed is not a metaphor. You're drenched in blood. Why? Because you get that arterial spray. You look like an emergency room doctor. All right. So the Catholic side decides to get all Machiavellian, and they murder an enormous number of Huguenots, and uh, this uh, upsets the Huguenots. They're still around. They leave. And this causes a terrific problem in the, over the long haul because they take uh, important economic skills with them. These are urban, middle-class, relatively educated people. So the Huguenots have to go. It's a solidly Catholic country. This is a, would, if they had been at war, this would be a war crime. As it is, it's just mass murder. This is why Montaigne says in that essay of experience, whenever people start talking about Jesus, I just run for cover because I know what these people are going to do. Right. <laughs> and he says, they have super celestial thoughts and subterranean behavior. And I'm really sick to death of this. No wonder he closes up, pulls up the drawbridge to his castle and says, look, I'm going to sit here and read and drink if that's okay with you. I've tried helping you people. It's my Christian duty. But you people are beyond help. I can't help you. Uh, if this is what you think Christianity is, I'm going to go and start my own kind. 
and uh, he remains a Catholic, but he says this is a, this is a gross moral evil, which it is. Yeah. Why did the Catholics attack again? Oh, um, because they were Protestants and thought they could uh, create a, a Protestant free country by killing them. Oh, the, the ones who attacked were the Protestants. The ones who Huguenot. were attacked. Oh, Huguenots. They're the Huguenots, yeah. In other words, the Catholics killed the Protestants one night, trying to do a Machiavelli, get it all done up front. Remember what Machiavelli says? If you have to, if you're going to do good things for people, dole them out bit by bit, stretch it, make it makes it look better. You you'll get more mileage out of it. But he says if you've got to do something really bad, like say murder ten thousand people, you want to do that all at once, so that after people are, you know get over the horror, we just go back to work. Okay. So uh, this is an atrocity, and uh, Montaigne has been doing, he, he's born an aristocrat in Bordeaux. His family is, contains both Catholic and Protestant branches, and in an earlier branch on his mother's side, um, he may have been forcibly converted as a Jew in Spain and then moved to France. Right. So here's a guy with some sympathy for the outsiders. And to be honest, uh, I look at something like the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, and it makes me root for the Protestants. What kind of messed up thing is this? Right? Uh, that everyone involved wasn't excommunicated, I think is a scandal. But, you know, history is what it is. You know, so warts and all, I'll stick with the church, but still, this is messed up, and this should never have been tolerated. And when he says super celestial thoughts and subterranean behavior, the problem is he's right. The more you can distance yourself from this world, the easier it is to be indifferent to murdering a lot of people. All right? So that's a concern. Um, Montaigne uh, was trained as a lawyer, and his father, you don't like this, wanted to make sure he was a good Latinist, because that's a sign of education. So he gave little Michel, his son, to a local peasant couple who were living separately. And it turns out that he found the only peasant couple in France that knew how to speak Latin. And he says, look, I only want you to speak Latin to my son. And I want that to be his first language, and it was. Okay. On the other hand, um, Although he's fluent in Latin, uh, he doesn't uh, meet his father until he's six years old. He says, come on, join the family. I just want to make sure you got a good taste of Latin. Now you can start speaking French and you can live at home. I don't know what kind of psychological bonding problem there is if you kind of farm out your child for the first six years and say, by the way, they're not your parents, we are. Mm, I'm having all kinds of misgivings about this. But he turns out to be a stand-up guy. He has both Protestant and Catholic members of his family. I do, too. I know what that's like. And I'm Irish, which, which makes it even more messed up. Right? Um, and so I have little patience for this kind of sectarian murder kind of stuff. I'm really disinterested in that. Um, but he says, look, I'm going to go into service of my country. Uh, he, he's mayor of Bordeaux, and Bordeaux is the center of the wine industry, so he makes a killing on the wine trade. And his family is quite wealthy, so 
He's a, a minor aristocrat in the southern part of France. Um, he knows the good stuff when he has it, because right? you, know, you get access to the best wine if you're an aristocrat. But um, he doesn't make very many friends, because apparently he thinks that most of the people around him are ignorant, which is true, of course, because he's got mostly illiterate peasants. But he says the ones that, ignorant, that, are, that are not ignorant would be better off. In other words, uh, he does not like very many uh, shop callers in France. He works, he's a Catholic, but he works with the Protestants that he can find in good faith. And what he wants to do is hammer out some kind of modus vivendi, some way that we can get along without slaughtering each other. He says, look at what's happening in Germany now. We don't need that. Civil war is a really bad thing. Religiously oriented civil war is, if possible, even crueler. Damn, this is awful. So he spends, uh, there, within the Catholic, Catholic France, there are two groups. There's the more centrist and accommodating one called the politiques. And then there are the hard shell Catholics. That want to, the, I don't remember what the name of it is. Call them the wipe them out faction. That's <laughs> essentially what they were. Now me, I like the politics. Let's hammer out some kind of reasonable agreement so that soldiers don't come in and kill people's families, and yet we don't undermine Catholic Christianity in France. It seems like that wouldn't be an impossible thing to work out. It was. So he spends decades, long time, going from the Catholic side to the Protestant side, trying to be an honest broker, saying, look, why don't we all put the weapons down, and why don't we find some solution that includes religious toleration? All right? uh, later on, when we get to Locke, Locke is going to be a big fan of religious toleration. But that's much later. Montaigne is a kind of pioneer here. And he was accused of not being devout because he wasn't part of the let's murder them all side. But that really isn't a lack of devotion, a lack of commitment. What it is is more or less sanity and the spirit of the law. So Montaigne spends a long time doing that, but eventually he just says, forget it. All right? A plague on both your houses. All right? I've been trying to help you people out, but I've noticed you can't help people that don't want to be helped. You're all bent on killing each other over this and extending the wars of the Reformation from Germany to France. Good luck to you. All right. This strikes me as being self-destructive and stupid. But I've looked around and I've found that the world is largely populated by the self-destructive and stupid. At least France is. So me, I'm going to take off my, you know, my insignia of state I'm going to go put on civilian clothes, and then I'm going back to my library. And of course, since his, since his first language is Latin, all right, he has a really good Latin library. He likes Virgil, he likes the Roman poets, all right, but he's a bit of a connoisseur, kind of an Epicurean, in the sense that he likes a little taste of this, and a little taste of that, and a little taste of the other, and he just ignores the stuff that's not to his taste. Another big change, 1572, the same year that we had uh, the St. Bart's Massacre, 
we also had the first publication in about a thousand years of Sextus Empiricus, the ancient Roman skeptic. Now, since you've read Lucian, you pretty much have the idea of how uh, skepticism is going to work and how that's going to work with uh, uh, Montaigne. But he looks at this and he says, you know, the problem is, is that this is mostly right. Fact of the matter is, most of what passes for reasoning is either circular or it leads you to an infinite regress. And he says, the only thing I can read that, for me, that works for me, that I can make any sense of, is revelation. Once God says it, you know, there's no, no messing around with it. But as, as to human reason, you know, he's not quite Tertullian, he doesn't want to kick it out. He says, look, uh, this is wildly overrated and wildly oversold. If we were rational animals, do you think that human beings in Europe would be doing what they're doing? Whatever they are, they're not rational. Right. So uh, Montaigne chooses quietism. He withdraws into his very well-appointed cave. Of course, his cave is actually a castle. He has lots of servants. He's got a good wine cellar. He's got a very nice library. And on the mantelpiece of the library, it says, what do I know? It's very Socratic. He says, look, all kinds of people claim to know all kinds of stuff, and most of it's hogwash. Me, there are very few things that I know, but among the things that I know, the thing that occupies me the most is me. And of course, why not? It's understandable that self-knowledge is a proper pursuit of human beings. And it's pretty much the only thing I have here because he's living you know, a rather isolated life. It's not that there isn't anybody there. He has servants, and he has friends come every once in a while so he can sit and have a few drinks and talk. Right? There are only a few people he likes to talk to, and the rest of the species can go over there and butcher each other. Right? So uh, Montaigne is a modern Epicurean. I mean, his castle is the pleasure garden. Unlike most Epicureans, instead of going to the garden and uh, engaging in various kinds of pleasant activities, he goes to the library and says, I'm going to do the cerebral analog of that. Me, I have a whole Epicurean garden here. It's, it's written in Latin. And he really likes these books. They're the ones he grew up with. So. Uh, he has a very thorough knowledge of the tradition, uh, apparently not a thorough knowledge of scholasticism, which somehow he managed to survive. All right. um, but he looks at culture. He looks at the French in general and uh, is surprised sometimes by the things that he finds, both in himself and in other people. All right. What does he have to say in his essays? What goes on? You read a couple which give you sort of the flavor of it. If you didn't like them, you could have chosen five or six different ones and you would have gotten them. Well, something that would have been simultaneously the same and different. <laughs> All right. All right. He says, look, if you don't like my essay, just start anywhere. He says, also, you don't have to start the book at the beginning. You can start at the middle, work all the way around, and work just as well. Because this is formless. This is structureless. 
the individual cells making this up have all these interpolations that go over the course of 20 years. In it goes, out it goes, yeah. He was, he had a lot of really actually insightful ideas sprinkled in there, particularly like a philosophy is learning how to die. Of course, that's a Roman idea, but mm -hmm. he had it again. And uh, there's much to be said for that. You know, uh, mortality is inevitably the object of human contemplation. There's no way to get around that. And uh, it's one of the few things you can count on besides taxes. All right? And uh, being aware of your finitude actually makes you keener and sharper. You know, because you know that, well, I can explain it from my own perspective. Um, it's kind of surprising and disappointing when you, real, when you actually find out, like I have, how short the ride is. <laughs> I mean, it was a real roller coaster, but when it's taken by surprise, when it starts to slow down, it's like, could this be the end? <laughs> yeah, it is. All right? So it's a great roller coaster ride, but you'd be surprised how short it is. All right? And uh, you'll also be forced to consider what's important to you and what isn't. Because you have a limited amount of time, how are you going to deploy it? You make a decision. He deploys it on examining himself. All right? And uh, yeah, there's a certain Socratic, it's the skeptical strain of Socratic philosophy. All right? And uh, he is Epicurean, but that doesn't mean he's irreligious. He says, look, we need religion to restrain ourselves into organized society. It's, it's the basis of civilization. He's a Catholic, but he's kind of a, a little of what will later become uh, Catholic in the Erasmian sense, rather than Catholic in the Loyola sense. Hmm. All right? So I mean, there's a bifurcation there. There are the ones who say, look, we're messed up, I admit it, but I'm still remaining with Catholicism because, well, I have my reasons. Loyola says, we're not messed up. You say we're messed up, but we're making war on you. This is the counter-reformation. And uh, the wars of the Reformation did more harm to the history of, to Christianity than any other set of events in history. Hmm. Right. This, incidentally, is going to be the source of what will eventually be called liberalism. In other words, liberalism comes right after the wars of the Reformation. That's not an accident. This thing, isn't this some other way for us to deal with religion without the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, things like that? And uh, what that means is that this is justifying a new idea, which is going to be religious toleration. That's going to involve the separation of church and state, ultimately. And it's going to mean that the legitimation of the government is going to move from religious to secular. This is why you get an age of revolution when the Enlightenment emerges. Right? We'll get the English and the American and the French revolutions out of that. So does, he, does Montaigne, is he accredited with the religious toleration idea, or does he just follow along with that? No, he was one of the most, he was one of the earliest guys to advocate religious toleration. If you look back at Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas explicitly says that heretics need to be separated from the earth by death. 
it's not complicated. All right, it's good. It's better for them that they not be able to do any more wicked stuff, and it's better for the people around them not to be seduced into heresy. Yeah. So, like the the later popes, like Pope Leo and them, like they kind of go against religious toleration. Would they be considered more like radical? Um, well, um, these are nineteenth-century popes, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, at that point, uh, I wouldn't call it radical. I call it reactionary. Okay. Right. Reactionary to. Well, um, to liberalism. Okay. To the idea that uh, religious belief is a private matter that people are entitled to decide on their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vatican II is going to affirm religious toleration, but. Uh, it takes several hundred years to bring the church online. So, uh, uh, I forget the name of the document from Vatican II, but there is one that guarantees. Um, yeah, freedom of, uh, I forget exactly as well. Yeah, but there's free, freedom of religion is guaranteed, which means that the, that the church isn't going to do a Thomas Aquinas on you. Right? So, um, Montaigne is very early there. He says, look, what I'm looking for is sane religion. And I looked around this damn little of it. Instead, what I see is madness and homicide, super celestial thoughts and subterranean behavior. I'm sick to death of this. I'm going back to my castle and I'm pulling up the drawbridge. Go away. <laughs> All right. So uh, he's decided. And I have some sympathy with this. I'm not necessarily saying it's the best choice, but I have some sympathy with this. If you try um, genuinely and sincerely to fix a situation, there are some circumstances in which you have to realize that you can't fix this. And if you can't fix this, what's the next best thing? Tend to yourself. Or as Voltaire will say a couple of centuries later in Candide, we must cultivate our gardens and live with our philosophizing. It's the only way that makes life bearable. All right, cynical, but there's some truth in that. Okay, we'll we'll talk about Raymond Saban tomorrow, but today I want to talk about the the essays that you read. Um, which did you like best or least, and what did you think? You did read these, right? Well, then there should be some answer to the question, what did you think? I, I liked cannibals and the custom of wearing clothing. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm noticing you all wear clothing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just interesting to me that he would suggest, like, at least in cannibals, he was talking more about the culture and, like, fact that it's cap- you're capable of having an ordered society with cannibalism, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, he makes a good point, but it was just interesting that he would suggest such, like, two absurd ideas, like, to our moral upstanding brains, but he brings in, like, current things like, oh, well, this king of this country does, like, he doesn't wear shoes, and these people that live in this country, they don't wear clothing, and, like, why should, because Mother Nature didn't make us and so he brings in, a, what I love is he brings in like very practical reasons and it's just like, well, yeah, but I, like, you can't really make an argument against it. It's really difficult, which I liked. Okay. Um, comparative uh, social systems, the, the analysis of them is being inaugurated here in Christianity. Now this already exists uh, a couple of centuries earlier in Islam with a guy named Ibn Khaldun. All right. Uh, but 
Montaigne is saying it will, will amount to something like a relativistic anthropology. Uh, I was reminded of uh, culture is king. Yeah, that's right. In other words, nomos is everything. All right. If you get raised in Polynesia, it will strike you as normal not to wear clothing. And if you stop and think about it, that makes perfectly good sense. What do you need to protect you from the elements in Hawaii? Mm, you know, they wear clothes there, but that's actually our custom being imported. There's no real need for it in a place like that. Yes. I say this brings us back to Herodotus when he, him yes. traveling through, out through all that's the cultures right. and how he says it's acceptable for them to, to burn the bodies and then the one is and acceptable eat them, right? eat them. Custom is king. Nomos is everything. All right. So what he's doing is pointing out to himself and to those who, who read him seriously um, that much of what we think is just normal and natural is in fact neither normal nor natural. They are actually socially constructed kinds of conduct that could easily be different. They don't have to be the way you expect them. Um, let's look at I mean, some examples. Um, first thing, I mean, think about it this way. Um, in England, they drive on the opposite side of the road from in America. Okay, which of us is right? Well, there's really nothing to talk about. You can, you can drive on that side, you can drive on this side. It would be kind of handy if all the cars in the world, world drove on the same side because then you know, it would make manufacturing that much easier. But apart from that, look, uh, different people are going to drop different conventions, which is all this is. So there is a tendency for those who are young and inexperienced, here I'm talking to people younger than you, when they encounter something new for the first time. I mean, part of, I mean, when I was raising my daughters, part of their education was travel. So you know, we took them to Vienna, we took them to Italy, we took them to England and Ireland, you know, do that kind of thing. Because what it does is make people less provincial. You realize that it's possible to drive on the other side of the road and without a disaster. Now, there are other differences. Um, some are differences that uh, are much more serious than the difference between driving you know, on one side or the other. Uh, mass murder would be a good example of that. All right? There, um, it's granted a convention not to round up people and kill them, but uh, it's more than that. From here, I would be tempted to trace it back to natural law. Uh, yeah. So, would you could you say that custom is king only in not trivial matters, but like matters um, that are not relating to morality? Well, you see, the problem is when we get into the gray area between mass murder and what side of the what side of the road you uh, use, or uh, to take something from uh, from uh, Swift. What, what end of the egg you crack when you try and eat an egg, right? Because there's a big argument to have about that. All right. Um, and look, wars have been fought over less. Did we get the chance to look up the War of Jenkins' Ear? That's my personal favorite. You didn't think that Jenkins' Ear could, could produce a war. It did. All right. So, there's plenty of stupid stuff. And... Montaigne wants to insulate himself from this. Look, I paid my dues. 
I tried my best and now I'm going home. I have to admit, the nobler choice is that of Marcus Aurelius. In other words, I gotta admit, he's the better choice of the two. But although I don't necessarily approve of Montaigne's decision, I understand it. I mean, if I were a Catholic and I saw um, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, I'd have another look at Protestantism. Right? I mean, they don't do this, do they? Well, if they do, then we're really hosed. Then I've got to come as Zoroastrian. <laughs> right? And I would prefer not to do that, but I mean, look at this. Right? So uh, he offers us new perspectives on convention and custom. Right? Convention and custom is more powerful than people realize. Around this is a great citation. The, when I was reading, I was like, well, here's the, uh, the first multicultural elective. That's <laughs> uh, the very roots of it, anyway. Okay. Well, he might be the roots, but it might also go back to Thomas More's Utopia. Remember that the Utopians have religious toleration, mm. right? And More says, well, look, maybe God wants different kinds of honors. I don't know. You know? So uh, what I do know is that the one Christian who's become crazy and is now causing a civil disturbance, we've got to lock him up. <laughs> And it's not, there's no doubt as to the sincerity of Thomas More's religious belief. He says we lock him up because that's the, the politic thing to do. Mm-hmm. All right? uh, religious discussion is very valuable, but peaceful, all right? civil discussion is what we really need. Right? So um, there's, there's surprising amounts of skepticism, strangely enough, or the skeptical tradition in Thomas More. Mm-hmm. Right, in Utopia. Um, clearly, when, when Moore says, look, uh, really sick people can starve themselves to death, I mean, the church isn't going to sign on to that then or now. Um, on the other hand, Moore is relatively flexible. It's not that he's lacking in Christian devotion. It's rather that he says, look, uh, you know, not everything is completely determined by the word of God. You're going to put your shoes on this morning, and you can put it on the, the right left first or the left first. God doesn't care. It's not a big deal. All right. So we get something like cultural relativism. And this goes all the way back to Protagoras, those of you who know the uh, Platonic dialogues. Protagoras is a sophist who says, it seems so to you. However, whatever it is you experience, that's the truth. Man is the measure of all things. And you can't argue with anybody about what they experience and believe. All right? So you have your experiences, I have mine. Yeah. There's a passage where Montaigne says that self knowledge replaces physics and metaphysics. Okay, yes, that's actually a very interesting observation, but that makes very good sense. Yes, remember, Montaigne is living and working in the generation after Copernicus. All right. 1543 is Copernicus's book on, geocent- on heliocentrism. And there's been a general fallout from that. And the Catholic Church has start, uh, uh, began and ended the, the uh, Council of Trent starting in 1545 to address the problems of the Reformation. Now, this is the kind of thing that makes a historian want to bang his head on the table. You are going to address the underlying problems that have spawned the Reformation. And you're going to do it in 1545? 
This has been around 300 years. All right. Um, I know that the wheels of justice turn slowly, but you had better get these things moving faster. I think particularly now, because we don't have 300 years to wait. Communications has developed and sped up. And if you think we can go generation after generation doing nothing and waiting for the inevitable uh, catastrophe that's going to come out of this, you're cooked. So sensible Catholics could see, like Erasmus, that the church was corrupt and needed fixing. But there were too many forces holding the church back from addressing these things. They should have and could have addressed this in the early 1300s. But they didn't. Right, yeah. I'm confused. Is it that Montaigne kind of was the one that would create cultural relativism, or was it just that, like, where is it these ideas are just popping up at the same it's, time? It's Montaigne that's particularly important there. Uh, remember that almost nobody at this time has a bi religious family. In other words, you can't, uh, very rare that the Protestants and Catholics are members of the same family and that they haven't killed each other. All right. So what he says is, look, all right, um, step back and ask yourself, is this the product of nature or is this the product of culture? And if it's the product of culture, we can modify it. All right. Okay. So we get the idea that Cannibals and natives in the New World can be civilized. As a matter of fact, Montaigne was opposed to the colonization of the New World because he said, what you're going to do is butcher these people. And pretty much that's what they did. One of the people that I admire most in history, Father de las Casas, earlier in the 16th century, had actually indicted the Spanish conquistadors saying that the stuff you've done is abhorrent, that it's grossly immoral, that these are human beings, and you butcher them, and you feed them to your dogs, and you torture them to get money that they don't have. And Father de las Casas says, this is going to stop, or all your Spaniards are going to hell. And that includes the king. The king doesn't usually get threatened with hell, so he says, all right, I want you to stop whatever you're doing in the new world. We're going to have a trial. And they actually talk about the moral status of the American natives, American Indians. And uh, Father de las Casas loses, but he says, look, when you say that people are natural slaves, you're Greeks, you're not Christians. All right? What you've done is canonize Aristotle, which is deeply mistaken. All right? uh, human equality <coughs> is one of the great contributions of Christianity. And initially, of course, this human equality was the equality of all souls in the sight of God, but this tends to bleed over into equality in this world. It'll take a while, but they're they're related. All right. Now, uh, cowardice is the mother of all cruelty, and God knows he's seen a lot. And that's actually a very powerful insight. The genuinely strong don't have to actually engage in uh, 
aggressive or hostile or cruel actions. Cruelty is the weapon of the weak. It's the weapon of the fearful. Terrorism in the contemporary world is in fact testimony to the weakness of those engaged in terrorism. If they were strong, they would, like ISIS, set up their own country and actually have a conventional military. So all terrorist groups, this is a confession of the fact that when they blow up the Twin Towers and stuff, this is a confession of how impotent they are. Remember that it's easy to destroy things, it's very hard to construct things. A six-year-old plane with matches can burn down a house that requires a hundred carpenters to build. All right. So one of the things that, you know, you're, you're leaving adolescence, you're moving into adulthood now. One of the things you'll notice is that adolescents really like destroying things. Fun, well, first of all, because it's fun, but second of all, because it's easy. Try constructing something. Destroying the Iraqi military, we did it in a weekend. Rebuilding Iraqi society so that they have Jeffersonian democracy, we're engaged in that fool's errand. That's never going to happen. So what that means is, take a page from Montaigne. Don't assume that your way of doing things is the only or the best way of doing things. I've told you about Tokyo and their maps. Or and oh, yeah, okay, this is great. Tokyo. Um, the streets have names, but the names generally aren't used. You may wonder, how do you get around that? You get into a cab in Tokyo, you tell them the number of the block you want to go to. So think about it this way. There's a, uh, a game, it's a strategy game called Go. It's Chinese and Japanese. They have a board, like a checkerboard, okay, or a chessboard, but they put their pieces, their beads, their counters, not on the square, but on the interstices between the two <laughs> angles. What that means is they're thinking about space in a completely different way. Okay? All right, now, they don't identify a location on the basis of the cross streets like you do in Manhattan. They find their location because those that have to get around in, in Tokyo memorize the number of the relevant blocks. They know where they all are. And it doesn't, it's actually not an inefficient way of finding your way around. But here's where things get weird. But they're not weird yet. All right. They do not number their buildings sequentially in space, which would strike us as being normal. If we go around to Smith Street, we'll find one Smith Street, followed by two Smith Street, and then three Smith Street. And we'd be most surprised if um, the numbers are discontinuous. We say, well, that's peculiar. In Tokyo, they attach numbers to the buildings in a given block on the basis of time. In other words, the first one, the one that gets number one, is the first one that gets built on that block. The second, which may be on the other side of the block, is the second that goes. The third, get the idea? Um, This actually makes perfectly good sense. There's nothing intrinsically irrational about this. Again, what Montaigne is doing is telling you, look, you're not a child anymore. Chill. Show show yourself to be an adult that understands that not everything has to be done the way you were brought up with it. You could do it in a different way without any problem. 
And this is actually very telling. All right? um, we have the habit of wearing clothes. It's customary. If you live in a place that has cold winters, yeah, wearing clothes makes very good sense. Right? On the other hand, it probably is inconvenient to wear a burqa to the beach. Right? That, I mean, yeah, women are forced to wear the giant black pub tents where only their eyes could come out. It's the inverse of Batman. <laughs> and uh, Montaigne said, well, that might say, oh, look, that's unusual. It looks rather uncomfortable, but, you know, if it works, it works. Right? So what it means is Montaigne is telling us, do not absolutize contingency. Arithmetic is the same everywhere. What side of the street you drive on is not. If someone were to tell you they were doing a different kind of arithmetic from the kind you are, you would have good reason to say, well, that's not arithmetic, because arithmetic is one unified thing. It's the same every place and every time. But customs are not, nor need they be. He says a lot of the cruelty and folly we engage in is caused by our inability to imagine anything different. One of the things that, I mean, Montaigne kind of straddles the line between philosophy and literature. You know, this is, again, this, I go back to what I've told you many times. Um, the divisions between the disciplines only exist for the accountants in payroll. Right. In intellectual terms, this, the disciplines are all continuous. Right. Anybody who says that he has a special thing with a special method is making a dubious claim. Right. So Montaigne is both literature and philosophy. And literature is important in your education because unlike, say, mathematics or physics, which might exercise your rationality, literature educates your imagination. And that actually is not a small thing. If you have someone who's met, who's, whose logical growth has been very powerful, but whose emotional growth has been stunted, in other words, a nerd, all right, that's someone whose imagination has not been properly stimulated. All they do is watch Game of Thrones and read science fiction and fantasy novels. Right? That's a real limited set of emotional circumstances and responses. We read Dostoevsky because it will mess with your brain and you won't be the same after that. All right? And not just Dostoevsky, there are a lot of things that will fit into that. All right? So, strangely enough, part of a good education is educating your reason, but also educating your imagination and your other faculties. Sympathy for other people. We'd like to educate that too and heighten your degree of compassion for others. That also can be taught. Right? And so what Montaigne is saying is do not absolutize whatever it is you grew up on. Most of those things are one option among many, not the uniquely right way of doing things. And you impose a great deal of hardship and misery on people who are culturally different 
when you force them into your mold. I mean, it makes sense if you do that with arithmetic, but there, they're actually going to say, well, your arithmetic actually gives me the right answer, and mine doesn't. Okay, that you can insist on, but um, that you should insist on clothing, for example. You might say, well, where do you live, and what's your environment? That would seem to be a relevant question. All right. Um, he seems to think that culture has to open up and what that requires is people who understand the contingency of their own arrangements. All right. Of course, if we were to realize the contingency of our own arrangements, we might then end the wars of the Reformation because he says, look, I'm a Catholic, I believe there's a, you know, Catholicism is the real word of God, but um, these people don't think that, and we have to ask ourselves the question, is it worth killing them all? And Montaigne says, no. Just move on. You don't have to like them, just tolerate them. Okay. Um, what's the, what do you think of the monstrous child? Yeah. Um, I thought it was really good. Um, first, because he got to the point. Yeah. <laughs> no, no kidney stones here, yeah. yeah. Second, because I think it's a bit of a tough pill to swallow. I think more people should read it. Yeah. Um, it's actually a decisive break from the medieval tradition. Right. Here's the idea that we get in both Aristotelian and Thomistic physics. Right. Living things reproduce. And you have probably noticed that cows give birth to calves rather than earthworms. Right? And uh, oh, acorns uniformly produce oaks. They never produce elk. All right? So what is normal, again, here we have normative physics, which is going to make it take its leave in a century or two. But here, Physics not only tells you how the world is, but how the world ought to be. All right? So you are reproducing properly if you do not produce an elk or an earthworm, if you produce human beings. That's your job. And every reproductive act is supposed to literally reproduce the parents. Okay. So if you have two arms, two legs, and a head, right, um, and your spouse does, the idea is that you will produce offspring with two arms, two legs, and a head. All right? Anything which deviates from that per idea of perfect replication is described as unnatural. Something immoral has happened here that prevented this from becoming what it was supposed to be, prevented it from realizing its intellect. Uh, Montaigne says, well, no. All right, let's consider this. We have cases where a two-headed calf gets born, and all the peasants flip out because calves are only supposed to have one head, and we looked at the cow or the bull that produced it, and we say they both have one head, the calf has two heads. I wonder if this is the end of the world. <laughs> is God sending us information about something really bad? Because this is unnatural. 
and a violation of nature right, is miraculous and it also is educative. You're supposed to be able to find God's sending you a message by sending in the two-headed calf or the child that's born with some great birth defect. This is a sign perhaps that the parents were sinful or maybe that the whole parish or country was sinful. Somebody was sinful because something's wrong here. This is not the right way to reproduce. Okay. Montaigne says the idea of uh, a mutation being unnatural makes no sense at all. In other words, look, what you've done is taking something that's unusual, which is an incomplete or imperfect replication of the parents. You've taken that unusual thing and promoted it right outside the physical universe. You've promoted it to something that's unnatural. Montaigne says, look, if it's inside nature, it's natural. This is not a secret message from God. It's a two-headed calf. Granted, it's weird, and you may be able to get people to pay a few dollars to see the two-headed calf, because it's kind of a monstrosity, fair enough. But this is merely unusual, not unnatural. Not only that, but a couple of centuries later, when we get Darwin, we're going to find out that mutation is what drives evolution. So far from being unnatural, it is actually essential to the process of moving from one-celled amoebas to complicated things like us. So it's not unnatural, it's just unusual. And that means that, the, that God isn't giving us information, that these haven't, people haven't made some pact with the devil, that there's nothing immoral about what's unusual, it's just unusual. That's very interesting because, well, there are all kinds of things that are unusual that are treated as being unnatural and in some nebulous sense, immoral, uh, representing some kind of evil, all right? Uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa today, those that are born albinos are often killed because they're understood to be something uh, unnatural, all right? Their body parts are used in various kinds of, you know, witch doctor magic. But the point is, um, it's true all over the world. It's not just true of France. That which is unusual in primitive cultures is usually regarded as unnatural and evil. All right, there are lots of examples of that. The fact that we can no longer call things that are in the world of space and time unnatural is actually one of the great ideas that Montaigne has. All right? In other words, look, um, there was a point in time when the ancestors in evolutionary time of human beings only had one eye. At some point, a really unnatural mutation happened. Well, you get, a, you get something with a second eye. It turns out the second eye gives you binocular vision, which means you can judge depth, which gives it a big survival advantage, and then you get the one-eyed creatures dying out, and you're going to get the two-eyed creatures. So, yes, the movement from one-eye to two-eye would be described 
by some people as unnatural, as a portent of bad stuff, but it's not. It's just the way that nature works. Most reproduction gives you rough and ready uh, copies of the parents, but some doesn't. That's not unnatural, that's just the way the world works. Yeah. So did he do a lot of examinations on like scientific matters, like animals and natural, like the natural? He kept his he he kept open. And one of the reasons why he has his friends come, he wants to get the new information. Remember that we still don't have much in the way of newspapers at this point. They're in the future. We don't have a, a sufficiently large number of literate people to sustain it. And you will hear information from his friends, or he will hear information from his friends and give him things to speculate on, right? He knows something of the tradition of ancient science and medicine because if you know the Greek, if you know the Latins, you also know the Greeks, mm -hmm. right? And uh, that, uh, an echo of that is what we're gonna get in medieval thought, right? It'd be a splicing together of Jerusalem and Athens, right? Montaigne is a great guy for the idea of nothing to excess. Now, the one excess that I think he allows himself is he's a bit of a hypochondriac, and so he, uh, he studies his own aches and pains quite a bit, and so he's a little bit self-absorbed. On the other hand, he's the first person in the Western tradition to say that the self <clears throat> is worthy of exploration in its own terms, for its own, for its own sake. The modern idea of subjectivity or the self is being released here. It's being liberated from the collective constraints of the ancient and medieval world. Um, a couple of centuries later, when we see a, a big burst of individualism in uh, the 19th century, um, many of those writers who focus on the importance of the individual um, find Montaigne a very powerful influence. Somebody like Thoreau, for example, really likes Montaigne. Mm -hmm. Emerson, too. Matter of fact, Emerson wrote some essays called, uh, called Unrepresentative Men, and he has the Platonist and the Stoic and the Skeptic uh, like Hume does too, but uh, he says uh, Montaigne or the skeptic. Mm -hmm. That's the title of the essay. He said, "Look, if I had to choose one, this is uh, this is my man." Mm. All right, because he says, "I'm writing a book about me," you know, You're gonna and this book about me is hopefully going to please you. But if it doesn't, it pleases me. Yeah. The influence on Pascal is quite obvious. Yeah. Well, oh, remember, when I taught you Pascal, I said, look, Pascal has two items on the agenda. The smug, all right, and the skeptical, all right. The smug are like Descartes. I've now figured out everything. <laughs> and now that I've thrown enough wood on the fire to see all and to know all, mm -hmm. um, I can now lead other people to the path of absolute certainty. And uh, Pascal says, look, I built an adding machine. It's not going to work. Rationality is not what makes you different from animals or from machines. 
And the other side is the smug. He said, look, there are lots of people who don't bother to think about or pursue religious questions because they think it's a waste of time. At night, all cows are black. What the hell can we know? And if that's the case, you end up with Montaigne, right? Look, I don't know about transubstantiation. Give me another drink and stop. <laughs> you know, um, A, when I had transubstantiation explained to me, I, I was completely unable to follow what was going on because apparently the bread and wine um, have the properties that appear to be bread and wine but really aren't. And it's only that bread and wine that's on the altar at Mass, the bread and wine in the tavern uh, down the street, that's just bread and wine. It looks like bread and wine, it really is. This looks like bread and wine, it really isn't. Okay, now you can have some elaborate discussions about what we're talking about there. But Montaigne says, save that. I mean, I've listened to 20 years of this stuff, and I really don't want to talk about this anymore. Right? I'd rather talk about me. I'd rather talk about a book I've been reading. I'd rather talk about anything except what occupies most of my countrymen. All right? So here what we're getting is what I would call the waning of the Renaissance. All right? Skepticism is a likely refuge in times of turmoil and uncertainty. All right? It appeals to people that have an overabundance of options. And he says, look, I did my bit. I was a public-spirited citizen. I got nowhere with you people because you all want to cut each other's throats. Goodbye. No? Montaigne made me think of sort of a second-rate Socrates. They both say focus on yourself instead of asking all these dumb questions. But Montaigne doesn't have the, the intellectual chops and the irony in order to, uh, to pull something out of the, pull a rabbit out of the hat. Okay, well, he's got his share of irony, right? Okay. right. But uh, he is Socratic without having the Socratic soul. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, to be fair to him, Socrates is a real hard act to follow. Yes. <laughs> okay. He has a, a definitely Socratic dimension, but um, I can't imagine Montaigne with a dime on. If he had one, he would have told us about it endlessly. <laughs> so there's no dime on that. Instead, um, he's a kind of splicing together of Epicureanism and uh, Catholicism and Socratic philosophy. It's kind of an uneasy braid there. Right? But he legitimizes the self as a philosophical issue, right? And it's not a model for everybody. It's not one size fits all like Augustine. He says, no, I'm just Montaigne. Or as Werther says, be a man and follow me not. Kierkegaard wanted to put on his headstone that individual, which is just so messed up. Um, that properly might have been put on the headstone of Montaigne. He was an individual in a time of fanaticism and cruelty, yeah. Nietzsche wrote, 
that such a man has written, joy on earth has truly increased. If my task were to make this earth a home, I would attach myself to him. Yeah, look, if Nietzsche likes him, it's got to be awful. <laughs> but on the other hand, look, Nietzsche has choosy taste. You can't, you can't take that away from Nietzsche. Nietzsche knows the good stuff when he sees it. And he says, yeah, you know, this guy's got a very protean mind. Instead of treating, treating thinking like wet cement, so you pour it into a mold, you let it dry, and then you have this forever, he remains fluid. Right? And he's talking about himself, and since his self changes, he has different things to say in different essays. All right? That's why it constantly is undergoing revision. It is a testimony to becoming. Montaigne embraces the transitivity of the world, the fact that it is undergoing change, and the observer of the world is also undergoing change. And to try and relate one change to another, you can see some of the impulses that are eventually going to emerge a century or two later in physics. The ratio of uh, change in speed uh, to distance covered or something, those are going to be the elements of Newtonian mechanics. So here we have an intellectual turning of the page. Here we're going to celebrate the unique, the fluid, the malleable, and the imperfectly bounded. So, with Montaigne, we are going to get a very influential writer that others will pick up on. Pascal would be a good example. He says, this is really bad for people because it gives them the sense that damnation is not looming over you, (laughs) which he thinks is a terrible situation. (laughs) All right, and Montaigne, if he had met Pascal, would say, so you think that I constantly have to be thinking about my own damnation? says, yeah, hell, I'm thinking about it all the time. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, Montaigne would say, well, would you like a drink? <laughs> what can I do for you? Um, again, he's not a licentious epicure. And he just says, look, um, I don't like what hurts, and I do like what's pleasant. I don't like kidney stones. I do like good Bordeaux. All right, which do you like? And Pascal would say, it doesn't matter either way, so you're going to well that's true but that's just completely mad (laughs) I mean yeah we're all going to be dead soon Um, does that mean we have to go through life constantly saying you're going to be dead soon Pascal says oh yeah (laughs) that's the infinite silence of these infinite spaces fills me with dread uh huh Uh, well there's medication for that nowadays right Whereas nobody, I think, would be tempted to medicate Montaigne. Said, look, you know, what you're doing and saying makes sense. It's in some ways ignoble because you were fighting the good fight. Right. And then you, just said, then you said, to hell with you all. Now, I understand that temptation 
but there are even greater men who resisted that temptation. So I wouldn't hold it against him if I were in his shoes. God knows I might have done the same thing. You know, 20 years working to save people from behaving like savages who don't want to be saved, eventually you might be tempted to say, enough of this. Um, If you get a chance and you see his essay on on some lines in Virgil, has almost nothing to do with Virgil, right? Because he's just done it again and again and again to the point where he forgot what it was about, right? And he has all this other stuff in there over the course of 20 years, Uh, This is one of the few books on the syllabus that I can, with a good conscience, just give you bits and pieces of. Because that's all it is. It's just bits and pieces. This is is amorphous, like an amoeba. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other. Um, But it's ill-defined. And yet... I might be tempted to say that this is, in the Western tradition, the first portrait of the artist as a young man. Actually, a portrait of the artist as an older man here, but you get the idea. It's a word portrait. What this should be compared to is the tradition of Renaissance portraiture. This is how the world looks from the human eye perspective rather than the God's eye perspective. It's nebulous, it's changeable, it's uncertain. And so, for Montaigne, it turns out that the self, the individual, is partially given, but also partially constructed or made. You decide, in some respects, what you are going to become and what kind of life you're going to but you're not completely in charge of that because nomos is king, custom is all. All right, I have a little bit of time left. I want to talk to you before we go. Now we're going to do Raymond Saban, and that's a long essay which also goes all over the place, but here we're going to talk, then we're going to talk about skepticism on Thursday. But here's the key thing. Your final paper is due the 29th of April, which is to say four weeks from today. So far, so good? All right, write that down. Yeah, you see, that's why I want to have you write that down. Now, next week, we're not going to be meeting, we're not going to be doing reading. Instead, what we're going to do is, well, some of, one of the more unusual elements of the course. You're going to have to come up with a question and what I want you to do is email me back and forth while we sharpen up the question to turn it from a blunt object to a, to a spear point. All right? um, so asking questions is a skill that can be learned, and as you figured out from last term, it's hard. All right? But the good news is once you get the question, you just bang this thing right out. All right? Now you must note this. Note well, nota bene, and me. Note well that you are required in whatever question you ask to address the two final readings. So you can't just just write it in terms of what we read up to now. Uh, The two final readings, I want to make sure you get there. The first is measure for measure, and I gave you an essay on that. Maybe that helps things make sense. I think it does. 
Um, what I was trying to show you in that essay is how powerful the discipline history is. I mean, you get all kinds of idiotic crap being written about measure of measure by literary critics of various kinds of political ideologies. That just gets it wrong. All right? uh, in fact, um, when put in historical context, measure for measure makes a lot more sense. It took me like 25 years to write that essay. Um, but as you can see from the essay, I read with unusual closeness. In other words, I do word by word, word by word, through all, through all 2,700 lines. All right? And uh, I've read this so many times that I know what the structure is, and I think I have a pretty good argument about what's going on in measure for measure. Right? This is not popular view nowadays, but I think it's, my understanding is that it's conclusive in just, look, history allows you to drop the hammer on people that don't know history, which is just about everybody in the social science, in the soft sciences. Now, it doesn't matter in the hard sciences, but in the soft sciences it does. All right? So, what I propose to have you do is read measure for measure first, then read the essay, then look at it again. I think you'll find something different. The next thing after that we're doing is Don Quixote. Everybody likes Don Quixote, right? On the other hand, like Moby Dick, it is desperately in need of an editor. It would be twice as good if it were half as long. All right. This thousand page monster tells the same joke again and again and again and again. Get ready for it. Don Quixote is funny because he mistakes appearance for reality. <laughs> Now he can mistake windmills for giants, or a wash, or a barber's basin for Mambrino's golden helmet, or any of the other mistakes he may have made. But here's the deal: it's the same story again and again and again. Don Quixote sees some great evil, which is not a great evil because it's nothing like what he thinks it is. And then Pan Sancho Panza tells him, Don Quixote, those are windmills. And then Don Quixote goes, no, they're not. They're giants. And then he goes and gets smacked around by windmills. At the end, Sancho Panza says, I told you they were windmills. Now, there's a variation on that. The other variation is Don Quixote mistakes appearance for reality. Sancho Panza tells him what the reality is. And then both of them get beaten up by reality. <laughs> right, that's the other popular possibility. Now, here's the deal. This is what you need to think about. Cervantes is to Spain, and it's backward-looking medieval culture. What Sancho Panza is to Don Quixote. He keeps on tugging at the sleeve of Spanish culture, saying, by the way, um, the Middle Ages ended 300 years ago, and you're still talking about knights and stuff, and about your special aristocratic status and stuff. Um, that's all as dead as the woolly mammoth, and you're making a fool of yourself. All right? So here's the deal. We're going to read Raymond Saban for Thursday. You have to get caught up, since you have a little bit of time during your uh, week of putting together a question. Get that reading out of the way so you can actually work on the paper. Email me your proposed question, and then I will email you back questions about your question. Then you will perhaps give me answers on a modified question, and then I will ask questions about that. And we will engage in the dialectic. All right. 
which will be uh, amplified and uh, speeded up by electronic communications, all right? But by the end of the week, before we come back to do Shakespeare, we must have a paper, to, uh, rather a question together. That's okay. by Tuesday, next Tuesday. Right. 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 Well, no, I mean, you can start this weekend, but you can go through the whole week because we're not going to do Tuesday or Thursday. Okay. Okay? So back and forth, back and forth. Um, I know it's maddening, but even worse is to reach uh, an impasse in your paper because you asked the question badly. Okay? Questions about this? All right. I will see you all Thursday. Raymond Simone.